0: We've entered into the last of Mark's story, and uh, we've talked about the sadness of Judas, the Last Supper, the seizure there in the Garden of Gethsemane, the sham trial that he went under. Uh, We went through, we talked about Peter's shame. We talked about the shunning when Jesus was left by all of his disciples and tried. And now tonight, we want to talk about his suffering the suffering of the Lord Jesus. Chapter 15, beginning in verse number 15. And so Pilate, willing to content the people, released Barabbas unto them and delivered Jesus when he had scourged him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away into the hall called Praetorium, and they, all, they called together the whole band now that whole band means potentially there's hundreds of soldiers that have gathered around the Lord Jesus. By the way, had Jesus wished that wouldn't have been enough. Remember, at any point Jesus can put a stop to this. He's sovereign. He's completely in control. Verse 17, they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head and began to salute him, "Hail, king of the Jews." And they smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him, and bowing their knees worshipped him. When they had mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put on his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled one Simon a Cyrenian who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. And they gave him to drink wine mingled with myrrh, but he received it not. When they had crucified him, they parted his garments, casting lots upon them, whatever man should take. And it was the third hour, and they crucified him. It's so interesting to me, as descriptive as the Bible is in other things, it gives us very little regarding the details of the crucifixion in the Gospels. You have more details about the crucifixion in the Psalms and in Isaiah and even in some of the minor prophets, than you do here. Verse 26, And the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two thieves, one on his right hand, the other on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled with Seth, and he was numbered with the transgressors. That's Isaiah 53, 12. 750 years before Isaiah nailed it. Well, more accurately, God did through Isaiah. Verse 29, and they that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days, save thyself and come down from the cross. You remember Jesus has said that early on in the Gospel of John. Verse 31, likewise also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, He saved others, Himself He cannot save. Let Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross, that We may see and believe, and they that were crucified with him reviled him. Both thieves reviled him. And when the sixth hour was come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is being interpreted, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of them that stood by when they heard it said, Behold, he calleth Elias, that's Elijah. And one ran and filled a sponge full of vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him him to drink saying, Let alone, let us see whether Elias will come to take him down. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. We'll stop there for now. All of recorded human history for the prior 400 years led up to this moment. The animals killed to cover Adam and Eve, the ark that protected Noah and his family, the Passover lamb, the blood on the doorposts, the rock that followed the children of Israel through the wilderness, every sacrifice affixed to the altar, every feast prescribed by the law, every act of grace displayed by God to his people, it all pointed to this one single, awful, beautiful, terrible, wonderful, horrible, magnificent event. And really all of human history for the last 2,000 years has looked back at this moment, too. We're speaking tonight on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, we're never going to do it justice. We could never speak enough about it. We could never, we could never cover all the truth involved in it. We, we could never do it. So because I can't reach that status, I've, I've established some ground rules tonight. One is I'm going to do the very best I can to stick with the narrative in Mark. There's going to be some elaboration from the other Gospels, but I'm going to do that as little as possible because if we start trying to put in everything that happens surrounding this event, we'll never get out of it. Now, that's a bad thing, but we won't get out of it. So those things that Mark doesn't cover, we, if we cover it at all, we won't spend much time on it. But understand that the Gospels complement one another. They don't contradict one another. There's much to be said. Something else I'm going to do my best to do is is be sensitive to the young ears that are present. I don't want to get into detail about his suffering in a gratuitous way. Let it be enough said that Jesus suffered horribly, and it was grotesque how he looked and what he endured. But I also want to try to be appreciative and appropriately sober. But more than anything, more than anything, let's do our best tonight, if God will help us, when we think of the crucifixion crucifixion, to internalize the why as much as the what we're going to talk about what happened but never lose sight of why it happened why but god commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners christ died for us never lose sight of the why I've heard people give long and detailed lectures about the what of crucifixion but they don't spend very little they don't spend very much time at all on the why so let's talk about the suffering of Christ father would you help us tonight help me to rightly divide your word of truth to handle this message tonight the way that most pleases you. Lord, break our hearts tonight. May I never lose sight of the truth that he did it for me. Had I been the only person on the earth, he'd have still come. I'm so thankful that God so loved the world As I was talking with a brother every other day, I'm so thankful that he so loved us. But Lord, help me to never forget that God so loved me. It's available to everybody, but it's available to me. So help us tonight to glean from this exactly what you'd have us to have. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. How in the world do you put together an outline about something like this? And and this is not an expository message in that we just move verse through verse here. I'm just kind of jumping around. Let's begin with the location of the, the crucifixion. Verse 22. And they bring him unto the place Golgotha, which is being interpreted the place of a skull. Now, there's a couple of possibilities here. Now, there was a tradition that was put forth that... Golgotha was called so because it was the traditional site of the burial place of Adam, that this is where Adam's skull could be found. I got nothing to base that on. That was a tradition. You know, nobody could know where Adam was buried. Um, but anyway, but I think there's two possibilities. One is maybe it's just a reference to the deaths that occurred there. Um, Again, I don't want to be overly gross or anything, but you understand that most victims of crucifixion were not afforded a high-class burial. Many of them were thrown into a potter's field. The birds would do their work, and all that would be left would be bones. So there were skulls to be found in this region. Could it be Could it be that, that they called it the place of the skull because of the bones that were there? Yeah, um, and, and that would explain one of the traditional sites in which the Catholics built a big church over and called it the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. Um, but there's another, there's another possibility. It may have been a reference to the appearance of the nearby hillside. And if that's the case, there's a strong argument to be made for a place called Gordon's Calvary. Um, I'm going to show you a picture. This is an older picture because so much has grown up around it, and frankly, over time, erosion has changed. The look of Gordon's Calvary, but you tell me. What's that look like to you? Now you've got to use your imagination a little bit, but you have two very clear eye sockets. Though it's off center, you do have a slit that represents the mouth at the bottom. It would not be hard to imagine that people called that the place of the skull. I don't know that Gordon's Calvary is the place either. There's a lot of good possibilities. Wherever it was, it would probably have been near a major thoroughfare because the Romans wanted to make sure that crucifixion served as a deterrent to crime. They wanted as many people to see it as possible. And they would leave people crucified along this roadside because they wanted people to see what happens when you cross Rome. Wherever it was, one thing we do know for sure about the location of Jesus' crucifixion is that it was outside the gate. Oops. Outside the gate. Is that important? You better believe it. In John chapter 1, verse 29, what did John call Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. Deuteronomy 16, verse 5. God gives instruction, thou mayest not sacrifice the Passover within any of thy gates, which the Lord thy God giveth thee. And so the writer of Hebrews goes on to elaborate on that. Hebrews 13 verse 10, we have an altar, whereof they have no right to eat which serve the tabernacle, for the bodies of those beasts whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned where? Without the camp. Wherefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered where? Without the gate. That's the location. But then I think we'd do well to just take a minute, no fun intended, and look at the timing. when was he crucified the God, the bible gives us a specific time that he was crucified in verse 25 and it was the third hour and they crucified him the third hour we would understand is 9 a.m. 9 a.m. um not for nothing there were a lot of things going on at 9 a.m. Synagogue was in session. Courts were in session. But something else was going on at 9 a.m. The morning sacrifice. They had no idea that the morning sacrifice that they were performing was now completely useless. Jesus' time on the cross was divided into two sections. He's on the cross for six hours, and from 9 a.m. to noon, he is enduring physical agony. They offered a mixture to, it's the closest thing you ever see to compassion with the Romans. They offer them a mixture of wine, gall, and so forth that is meant to deaden their senses. I don't think it's as much to deaden the pain as it is to make them fight less make them more manageable. Jesus refused it. He went into this thing with his full faculties. They nail him to the cross, and he is there in absolute agony Agony for the whole six hours, no question. But the first three hours focus on his physical agony. But then at noon, we have an added spiritual agony. We're we'll going to talk about that more later, the timing of this. But, but now, we've seen the location and the timing. What do you experience? I'll not come anywhere near adequately telling you. I'm not capable of it, what Jesus experienced. Well, the first thing he experienced Was injustice? Would you would you agree with me that never has there been a greater injustice than this right here? Look at verse twelve. And Pilate answered and said again unto them, What will you then that I shall do unto him which is is called king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. Then Pilate said unto them, Why? What evil hath he done? And they cried out the more exceedingly, Crucify him. Do you understand that when Pilate condemned Jesus to be crucified, he did so having declared with no uncertain terms, This man is innocent. And never has it been more true. All of us bear a certain degree of sinfulness. Jesus bore none, completely and totally pure from sin. What a grave injustice. And so when we're tempted to give up on God because we've suffered some kind of slight or some kind of perceived injustice, be glad that he didn't feel that way. But he didn't just experience injustice, he experienced terrible insult. You notice they mock his sovereignty? Look at verse 18. They Began to salute him, hail, king of the Jews. Verse 19. They smote him on the head with a reed and did spit upon him and bowing down their knees worshiped him. Verse 26, even Pilate, the superscription of his accusation was written over the king of the Jews. Pilate didn't mean to write the truth, but he sure did. The full text in Greek, Hebrew, and Latin, if you put all four gospels together, it would have said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. They mocked his sovereignty. You know what else they mocked? They mocked his sonship. Look at verse 29. They that passed by railed on him, wagging their heads and saying, Ah, thou that destroyest the temple and buildest it in three days. Save thyself. Come down from the cross. Likewise, also the chief priests mocking said among themselves with the scribes, he saved others himself he cannot save. Let Christ, the king of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe and they that were crucified with him reviled him. When you add the other scriptural accounts, you understand that that they're really really mocking his sonship. I thought God was your father. Where's he? It's important to understand that Surprisingly, Hollywood didn't always get it right, nor did even the painters of the Renaissance. Traditionally, what would happen is somebody crucified would be crucified with their feet just barely off the ground. There was meant to be an added psychological element to that, to be so close to the ground and not be able to touch it. But that meant that somebody walking by, if they were just a little bit taller than most, they could look him in the eye and make these insults. Imagine that. He's hanging there, and somebody walks right up to him. Why don't you come down off that cross? He saved others. Can you not save yourself? Jesus didn't respond to him. But if he was going to, I wonder if maybe he wouldn't have said the same thing that Nehemiah said. You remember what Nehemiah in chapter 6 verse 3 said? Hey, why don't you come down off that cross? Could he have truthfully said, I'm doing a great work so that I cannot come down? Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? You see, they didn't realize that Jesus, in his moment of greatest humiliation, was also exalted. He was and is the king of the Jews. And even on that cross, he was enthroned. experienced injustice, experienced insults, experienced horrible injuries. I'm going to give you some that aren't in the text, but just, just to give you a complete picture. He begins with sleep deprivation. He was taken in the middle of the night. He hasn't slept at all. And if you've ever been through that, you know that that has its own effect on you. Over time, there's dehydration that takes place, particularly if you've lost a lot of blood, and he has. What about the beatings? Verse 15 tells us that he'd already been scourged. In fact, Pilate scourged him, hoping that that would satisfy the bloodlust of the Jews, but it didn't. And again, because of the kids that are in here, I'm going to be careful, but you understand we're not just talking about lashes across his back. We're talking about a cat of nine tails that was designed to inflict the maximum amount of damage. And many times people died from that. It says something, forgive me for how this is going to sound. It says something about the massive physique of the Lord Jesus that he was able to take this beating and survive to the cross. If he was this waif looking thing that so many people portray him as he'd have never lived through it because he did not use one ounce of his deity to get to the cross he suffered all of it as a human all of it so he's already been through the scourgings what about what about the beatings look at verse 19 they smote him on the head with a reed what's a reed it's basically a broomstick Well, it doesn't sound that bad. Let somebody hit you across the head with a broomstick. Especially when you've already got the thorns on your head and every, every hit drives those thorns farther in. It is not out of the realm of possibility that by the time they were done, those thorns which were long were all the way to a skull. The thorns. Verse 17, they clothed him with purple and plaited a crown of thorns and put it about his head. You've got sleep deprivation, you've got dehydration, you've got beatings, you've got the thorns, and then you've got excoriation. What's that? Uh, that's removal of skin. Now, when did that happen? Verse 20, and when they mocked him, they took off the purple from him and put on his own clothes on him. Every time they put fabric on him, it would adhere to his skin, So every time they ripped it off, it's, it, what, what, it's like ripping off a Band-Aid, but much, much worse. His skin that is so raw and, and open is just constantly being reopened and, and reflayed. The same would be true as he rubbed against the cross. Every time he pulled himself up to take a breath, to say something, it's just tearing his skin all to pieces. Verse 21, And they compel one Simon of Serenity, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. He is called upon to bear his cross, as all criminals were. He made it a little ways. And there'd be great pain associated with that. And every time he stumbled under the weight, there'd be further injury. And he hasn't even gotten to the cross yet. But then in verse 25, and it was the third hour, and they crucified him. Now's the crucifixion proper. What about the piercing? There's debate. Did it go through his hands or did it go through his wrist? It could have been either. They've done studies. And the average hand does have enough muscle tension and tone in it to not rip with a nail. Especially if that hand has already been bound to the cross. But for safety, could they have put it through the wrist? Potentially. But I doubt it. I'll tell you why. Because in the wrist you've got some blood vessels that if you sever them, you bleed out. And they don't want that. It's likely it went through right there. But whether it's here or whether it's here, you hit a nerve. I believe it's called the ulnar nerve, and it runs right down your arm. Let me tell you something. Pain. The feet, they would either hammer through the arch of the feet or through the ankle. Now, I doubt that's what happened with Jesus because he had no bones broken and to hammer through an ankle would certainly break that bone. But the piercing, you ever had a bone dislocation? You ever dislocated all of them? Psalm twenty-two, seventeen: 17, I may tell all my bones. They look and stare upon me. Most believe that what that means is you could clearly define the ends of each of his long bones. When did that happen? It happened when they nailed him to the cross and they lifted the cross and they dropped it in the hole and his body shuddered. Exposure. If it's a hot day, if it's a cold day, if it's a windy day, whatever, he's exposed to all of that something you don't think about, but but when you're dehydrated, and particularly when you're lacking certain nutrients, what do your muscles tend to do? They cramp. You ever had a bad cramp? You ever had one for six hours? This did not happen to Jesus, but it was not uncommon for wildlife to have their way. You couldn't defend yourself, birds, anything. He would be battling asphyxiation. That's not what killed him, but he would be battling asphyxiation because what happens is as you're hanging on that cross and as you're in this downward position, fluid begins to build up and everything begins to settle down and you have to pull up to take a breath. And if you hang down there long enough, you'll suffocate which is why they would break the bones. They didn't do that with Jesus, but they would break the leg bones so they couldn't push up again, and they would, they would die quicker because they couldn't breathe. It's important to remember that. The Bible predicted that not a bone of his would be broken, and not a one, not a one was. Dislocated, yes. Broken, no. Do you know what? This wasn't the worst of it. Can you imagine? This was not the worst of it. The injustice, the insults, the injuries, but the worst of it by far was the isolation. Verse 33. And when the sixth hour was come, that's noon, There was darkness over the whole land. Do you understand what that means? That doesn't mean Jerusalem. It means Dan to Beersheba. The whole land. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. That's 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice. Elohim! Eloi, lama sabachthani which is my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? You see God had been pouring out his wrath on Jesus. Jesus who had been bearing the weight of the sin All mankind. Boy, let me be real careful about how I say this. God has in the recent past given me a better understanding of what that means. And maybe you've been through something like this too. Something happens. You didn't do it it's not your fault. It happened to somebody else, committed by somebody else, and yet their sin presents a crushing weight on your heart. It just it hurts. It hurts to know they're going through this. It hurts to know somebody did this. It hurts to know that they're facing this. It hurts, but it's not mine, but it hurts. Now imagine that if God that God took the sins of all mankind past present future and put it on his son and he bears that weight sins that were not his but he took them an eternity's worth of sin on him And God is pouring out his wrath, his anger, his righteous indignation. And Jesus hanging there for six hours, just taking it and taking it and taking it. But that wasn't the worst. The worst is when the Father went. turned away and darkness enveloped the, the whole land and for the first time in all of eternity Jesus the son is out of fellowship with his father the horror My God. Why didn't he say my father? Because for that moment, he had no father. My God. My God. Why hast thou forsaken me? That was the worst part. How do we sum that up? We can't. But here's what Paul said. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He who was righteous became sin, that we who are sin might become righteous. We've seen the location, we've seen the timing, we've seen the experience. What then was the result? We're going to look at two categories. First of all, there's the universal result. Look at verse number 37. And Jesus cried with a loud voice and gave up the ghost. As much as I want to stay in Mark, I can't. What did he cry? John nineteen thirty. When Jesus therefore had received the vinegar, he said, "It is finished." And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Now we know he goes on to say, "Father, in the hands I commend my spirit." But it is finished. Can you imagine Jesus hanging there in darkness? God has, after pouring out his wrath on our sin, and Jesus absorbing all of that righteous indignation, he hangs there out of fellowship with his Father. And God, with his back turned, all of a sudden he smells the same sweet savor he used to smell on the day of atonement. It rises up. And Isaiah 53 says, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. So what does he do? His back is turned. He turns back around. And Jesus sees him. I don't know what went on between the two. But I got to think it was something along the lines of The Father was satisfied. Sin paid for. Righteousness available. And you will never convince me that as Jesus took that vinegar to moisten his lips to say something, as he went through the agony of pulling up on those nails, and he took in that breath when he cried out, Tetelestai, it is finished. You will never convince me that he didn't smile. It is finished. Four things happened when he said that. One, and this is the use of that word, tetelestai. It's one Greek word, three in English. It is finished. Three uses. Four uses, rather. One a completed task of an obedient servant. The master tells the servant to do something. He completes the task obediently and fully. He comes back to the master and says, "Tetlestai, it's finished. A followed order of a faithful soldier. Centurion tells a soldier, go do this. The soldier comes back having completed it. He's done his duty. Tetlestai, it is finished. Number three, the perfect masterpiece of an inspired artist. Oh, he's been working on that sculpture forever. He chips a little bit here and he sands a little bit here and all of a sudden that's it it's perfect. Ted let's die it's finished. Did Jesus complete the task as an obedient servant? He sure did. Did he follow the order as a fa- order of a faithful? As a faithful soldier, he sure did. Is redemption a perfect masterpiece? It sure is. But more than anything, it's the word that was written across when there was a full payment of an insurmountable debt paid in full. It is finished. Do you understand what that means? Anybody that goes to hell goes to hell with their sins completely paid for. We see a universal result in the it is finished. Something else we see in verse 38. And again, there's other things that happen in other gospels. We're not going there tonight. But in verse 38, and the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top, To the bottom. What veil is that? That's the veil between the holy place and the holy of holies. Top to bottom. Is there significance in that? Yep. What man in there is going to rip that thing at all, let alone from top to bottom? So who rips it? God does. What did it signal? Two things, I believe. I believe it signaled a dead religion. Why? Why? Because what's supposed to be of the Holy of Holies that almost certainly is not? The Ark of the Covenant. Ark of the Covenant probably been gone since the Babylonians came in. So what's in there? I don't know. But I'll tell you what they all found out. See, up to that point, only the high priests went in there. And only the high priests knew there was nothing in there. But now everybody knew it was empty. When Jesus died, if they were willing to look, everybody saw Their religion is empty. But more than that, it signaled a dead religion, but it also signaled an open door. That veil separated people from God from tabernacle times. What's he saying now? Come on in. Hebrews 4. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. One of the most, I'm not trying to be sensational or unkind, but one of the most offensive things to me in organized religion is this. Father, forgive me, for I have sinned. It's been two weeks since my last confession. Let me tell you what my Bible says there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You don't have to come see me to talk to God, you can talk to him directly. It's called the individual priesthood of the believer. When you get saved, you are granted full, complete, and unfettered access to the God of creation, the sovereign of the universe. And you may, as long as you're in fellowship with him, as long as things are right between you and God, you may go to him unhindered at any moment you need to. And you will be ushered directly into the very throne room of God. Because of this. And sometimes I don't feel it. And I come to God and I'm like, Lord, I'm not worthy. But here's why I'm here, Lord. Because you said to come. And you said because of Jesus, I can come to you and I take you at your word. Yeah. Yeah. These were universal results. And there's many, many more for sure. Can we take a few minutes? We're almost done. There was a universal result. But in that moment, you know what? There were also some personal results. For who? How about a repentant criminal? Luke 23, verse 39. Remember, both of them are railing on Jesus and insulting him. But all of a sudden, something happened at some point. One of the malefactors which were hanged railed on him, saying, If thou be Christ, save thyself and us. But the other answering rebuked him, saying, Dost thou not fear God, seeing thou art in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we receive the due reward of our deeds, but this man hath done nothing amiss. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said unto him, Verily, I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. Was there a personal result for that fellow? You better believe it. There was a personal result for a repentant criminal. You know what else? There was a personal result for a random commuter. There's a guy that literally is just passing through. He's probably a pilgrim in town for the Passover. He's just passing through. Verse 20. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe from him and put put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who what? Passed by. He's not looking for trouble. He's just passing by. Coming out of the country, he's been been in the field. He's just going back to the hotel probably. The father of Alexander and Rufus to bear his cross. A random commuter. Obviously, there was nothing random about it. God was in control. There is excellent reason to believe that Simeon, this pilgrim, Simon, got saved. Here's why. First of all, in verse 21, Mark assumes that his readers know who Alexander and Rufus are. But if that's not enough, what about Paul in Romans chapter 16, verse 13? Salute Rufus, his son, chosen in the Lord, and his mother in mine. Not only is Rufus saved, they're so close to Paul, he calls Rufus' mama, mama. Now, would it be too much of a stretch if Rufus, Alexander, and their mama got saved? Who'd they hear about this from? Simon. There were personal results for a penitent criminal, a random commuter. You know what else? A Roman centurion. Look at verse 38. And the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And when the centurion, which stood over against him, saw that, saw that he so cried out and gave up the ghost, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Is that enough to call him saved? If he meant it, well, it sure sounds like it. But do you know something I've never noticed? God, forgive me. I've never noticed this. It wasn't just the centurion. Because in Matthew's account, Matthew 27, 54, Now when the centurion and they that were with him, who's that? His soldiers. The guys that nailed Jesus to the cross. The guys that dropped him in the hole. The guys that were standing there. The guys that gambled over his clothing. When the centurion and they that were with him, watching Jesus, saw the earthquake, and those things that were done, they feared greatly, saying, Truly, this was the Son of God. Yeah, there's a universal effect, absolutely. But there's also personal results for a repentant criminal, a random commuter, a Roman centurion. But there's one more person that this had a result for, a restless child. Okay, he's not in Mark. He's not in Luke. He's not in John. He's not Matthew. Who's the kid? He's a kid in a Sunday school class in Petersburg, Virginia. His teacher's name was Annette Brockwell. He called her Aunt, Aunt Annette because Annette and his mother were cousins. But because she was significantly older than him, he called her Aunt And she told a lesson about stealing cookies from the cookie jar. That that was a sin. And that sin separated us from God. And that little restless student, that restless child, pondered that for a number of days. And then the Friday after Thanksgiving, 1979, he couldn't take it anymore. And he went to his mother. And he said, "Aunt Annette said, that sin makes us go to hell. And my mother sat in a kitchen in Dinwiddie County, Virginia, November 29th. 1979, and told me, yes, sin sends you to hell. But Jesus died to pay for that sin. And he rose again. And if you'll ask him, he'll save you. Did that day have a personal effect for me? And if you're here tonight and you're saved, every one of you can insert yourself. And you may not remember all the details. That's okay. I, I do, but that, that's okay. It's strange what we remember. I remember the linoleum. I could, if, if it was in a picture, I would pick it out. I remember the linoleum in the kitchen. You say, I don't remember all that. That's okay. That's okay. But if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, it wasn't just universal for you. It was personal. Because Jesus, fully human on that cross, still fully God. And I am convinced that in his divine mind, In six hours, his mind went across the names of every one of the billions of people for which he was dying. And so the song, I believe, is accurate. When he was on the cross, I was on his mind. So next time, what do we cover? If the Lord will help us, we're going to cover three sections and finish the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to talk about his slumber. Well, nothing happened while he was dead. Oh, plenty was going on while he was dead. Plenty. Get this. Jesus, busier dead than we are alive. Can I give you, can I give you, a, give you just a hint? You know what he was doing while he was dead? Preaching. Preaching. It's slumber. Then we get to talk about the sunrise. Early that Sunday morning, while it was yet dark, Jesus Christ in his physical glorified body walked out of that tomb having defeated death and hell for all eternity. And then that leads us to our expected service. He went back to heaven. What does he leave for us to do?